Politics International. This is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. Welcome to the end of year edition of Blunt Dissection. Now, if 2020 was the year that got away, then 2021 was the year where we bounced back. It too came with huge uncertainty and challenges, and life in practice was played out against a rather depressing narrative of burnout and talent drain. With uncertainty still rife and vetmed at what feels like a dangerous tipping point, what can, indeed, what must we do to move forward? One of the answers I suspect is already in play, simply hiding in plain sight. Resilience. That's oft talked about, but seemingly quite elusive quality to acquire. One that's born out of adversity, and in the past two years, you've been building yours, perhaps even without realizing it. So as we reflect on another journey around the sun, I thought it'd be nice to shine some light on how each of my guests views adversity, how some have failed to let it crush them, others have helped others, and all have harnessed adversity's painful energy to slingshot around the other side, sometimes scarred, but definitely stronger. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at FedEx. If you are struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter, or you're burned out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the FedEx community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. I enjoy these end of season episodes. They take an incredibly long time to edit and go back through because you're effectively going back through 11 hours worth of conversations. But they also allow a great deal of reflection and this time of year is just a wonderful time for doing that. So I hope as we meander through the episodes this year where I've picked out some clips that have particular meaning for me that you get whatever you need in order to reflect and enjoy the thought that you have travelled one more year in veterinary medicine and that in itself is something to be incredibly proud of. So sit back and enjoy this episode with 11 of the best stars in veterinary medicine in 2021. Enjoy. In January, I spoke with one of the most senior vets in corporate life, Dr. Molly McAllister. Molly lost her sister in a tragic incident, and while devastating, she found a gift in the appreciation of how fragile life is and how important it is not to be sidetracked by things that probably don't matter, but seem to crave much of our attention, and instead do work that holds deep meaning. Listen in to this touching clip as she recalls how the experience shaped her as a person, leader, and parent. Life is about... It's about how precious it is because of the risk in the world around us. And so that would be a second piece. And then I would say a third piece that came along a little bit later would be around the value of not just the value of life, but the importance of a real sense of humanity. And what I mean by that is this was also probably relatively soon after she passed away, but I remember reading articles in the paper around, you know, world events. And it, it would say, you know, casualties, 112 died, 67 died, or I'll go to events in the U S last week, five people died. And it's so easy for us to get lulled into a sense of, well, these things happen. Those people died. And I I remember the moment where I thought, what about each of the families of each of those people? What if there's a sister, there is a parent, there is a relative, there is a friend whose life has been changed forever because of this. And so how does that impact the decisions we make? I'd sum it all up. If I look at really what, what it came to in my adulthood and many of the choices I made was about how precious life is, how valuable our life is, and how important it is that we live it with purpose. You know, I don't want that to sound unrealistic, but I think that it's so easy for us to get sidetracked by things that don't matter. It's a normal part of life to get sidetracked by things that don't matter. I don't live my life in some you know, perfect Zen bliss, always focused on a greater purpose, but I think it's important to be able to remind myself and pull myself back. You know, I'm trying to get into meditating and I think it's that, you know, that idea of it's okay, your mind's going to wander, your purpose is going to wander, but being able to pull yourself back and remind yourself that practice is what is really important. So I think pulling ourselves back to the fact that 
we have one life and living it as far as I believe. And, you know, there's other beliefs out there, but living this time with purpose is one of the best things we can do. There's a long <laughs> answer to your simple question. There's a lot to dig into there. The first question I've got off the back of that is there feels already in our conversation, like, and maybe there's cognitive bias happening in my mind here. <laughs> the thought of dualities is cropping up again and again, as you speak, mm -hmm. there's the the urban and the town. There's the, I think Betsy Charles describes it, the tension between the awful and the incredible. Mm -hmm. There's one other thing popped into my head there as you were talking about purpose and this lesson that you, you were passed from your sister in having that purpose, but also in this, that, that doing anything and having purpose and taking a direction and going in a, on a journey, you're going to suffer setbacks. Mm -hmm. And that I wonder if this, is there a message for you that you can offer, you know, perhaps someone who's earlier on in their career or going through something tough where I wonder if the interpretation of there's one life, so don't waste it. That when people come up against something hard, they go, oh, this is too hard. I'm not wasting my life on this. It's uncomfortable mm -hmm. and life's meant to be good all the time. <laughs> so they stop, but you don't get to be in a position where you're the medical chief medical officer at Banfield. You don't get to be, in a position where you're anything, good at anything, where you when you attain a sense of uh, mastery that you can do this without going through that pain. Is there a message in there that you would have for people? Yeah, this is a great question. It's something I've been really reflecting on a lot in the last couple of years of my life, which probably not coincidentally is the time I've been in this role. I firmly believe in the importance of, you know, some people call it paradox. I think some people would just call it the space between. I firmly believe in the power of being able to hold two realities, two distinct realities, differing realities, and hold them together and not feel a need to come to an answer. And I'll step back and say, when I think about myself earlier in my career, when I think about the culture in veterinary schools and, you know, in our profession, when I first graduated, it was about having the right answer. It being was right. about being get, right, being right yep. getting through whatever judging, the problem was ahead right. of you judging there's a right and there's a wrong. And I think what I have really learned, what is really, and started with my sister and has only been solidified as time goes on is that there really is no right and wrong. I mean, sure, you know, we can talk about what diagnosis you make off of this radiograph or, but when it comes to the really important questions, and I'd say, well, I won't rabbit hole too quickly. When it comes to the really important questions, it is that ability to sit with two opposing emotions, two opposing viewpoints and be okay being in that space. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean feeling great about it. It doesn't mean that you run into a barrier and you think this is wonderful. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, you know, ideally at some future point, we look back at those hard times and we do find the gratitude in it, but it's not about that. It's about recognizing that this life is precious and challenging. When we learn to live into that challenge, when we learn to, yes, find the moments of bliss, find the moments where we can be grateful, but also be okay recognizing that Sometimes it's hard and we just need to live with the hard. We don't have to be happy about it. Social media savvy Dr. Lisa Lippman had been on my radar for a while before I interviewed her back in February. As one of the most followed and socially influential veterinarians in the United States, Lisa's pathway into veterinary medicine was not your traditional one. Struggling in school and sidetracked into a career in PR might have proved a setback too far, but it only helped galvanize Lisa and realize her true potential, allowing her to pursue her dream to become a veterinarian. I mean, I ever since I was like zero, ever since I can remember, I've wanted to be a veterinarian. I grew up, uh, well, we'll take it just way back, I guess. I grew up, my neighbors used to breed these Shih Tzu puppies and they used to put me in a child's playpen with these Shih Tzu puppies and feed me chocolate. And that was, the, I'm, I think I was done for. So I have literally, since I can remember, wanted to be a veterinarian, but I was not a good high school student. I was a terrible high school student. I mean, I don't know, terrible, but I was not a good high school student. I was much more interested in being social and uh, just not confident that I could pursue the sciences. And then I got to college and I made my, my concentration biology 
and my major public relations. So I figured, oh, well, you know, this is still sort of, maybe I'll do like biotech PR, pharmaceutical PR, crisis PR or something. What made you choose PR? You know, actually, I started off as education just because I had no clue. I didn't think I was probably good enough to do a lot. And that's just kind of how I got in. This is how we thought I would get into college, I think. So I think I, with my like guidance counselor, we just chose the route to however I thought we thought that I would get in. So I actually started off as education. And then what happened was I did so well when I was able to, so in high school, part of the thing was I was very frustrated. I didn't understand like why I would get up at seven in the morning, take all these classes I didn't want to take. I really rebel against people telling me what to do, I think. And I was just really angry at a lot of it. And then I got to college and I was able to choose my own courses, choose my time schedule. For me, that just made such a huge difference. And I had an incredible biology professor and I did so well. I was actually accepted to like a special genetics course. So I pursued biology thinking, okay, I'll have some of my prereqs if I want to think I can pursue veterinary medicine. But just in case, then I chose public relations because the communication school at Syracuse, where I went to undergrad, is actually one of the top three communication schools in the country. And so it has a phenomenal reputation. And I thought, okay, this maybe this is fun. Like PR would be something that I think I would be decent at. Um, and I spent a summer working at a veterinary clinic. And I spent a summer, the same summer, actually, also working for a fashion catalog doing public relations. And I just felt yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is still my calling. So I, I actually, when I graduated, I didn't go out into the workforce. I just literally went right back to school. I applied. I got into UPenn's post-bac pre-medical program and spent three years there just kind of taking my time doing the rest of my prerequisites and working at the hospital to get experience. And then I applied. I lived in DC for a year. So I had to apply like three times, I think, two or three times. And then the third time, then the, the last time that I applied, I got accepted. I got like, I had like four interviews. I got accepted at three places. So I had my choice at that point. And yeah, it was just just really crazy. Just persistence is, is everything. In March, I spoke with the remarkable human, Dr. Peter Domit. Pete has, by any measure, lived a life of adversity, from an insane sea disaster aboard a racing yacht, Cloud9, worthy of its own Hollywood script, to buying, building up, and then losing his paradise on Earth farm. Pete has every excuse available in the book to be angry and hateful of this world, yet it is instantly obvious that he's a man who loves life, cares about animals, and wants to contribute to a better world. That, in my book, is a man worth listening to. So how did he use the brutality he suffered at the hands of Mother Nature to create a stronger bond with life than before? I think it was quite interesting because I didn't think I was changed much by it. I didn't think it had had much effect on me. But in my years at university, I only ever failed one exam. And many of our exams were orals. And the particular exam I failed was the uh, lecturer who was the professor who was giving the oral started off by asking me about cloud nine and I just had a mental block and I couldn't answer any questions. He passed me even though I clearly failed <laughs> because he realized that it hadn't been a, a good thing to do. But so yes, I think there, there are underlying things, but I think the main thing that took away that, that I took away from it is that there's no point in being scared. You know, I don't know why. I often used to think, why why did I survive and not the other guys? The other guys were much more competent than I was. You know, I was just a young kid who never even sailed before in an overnight race. And the other guys were very accomplished yachtsmen, really good sportsmen, really good guys. You know, so like, why did I make it? And it's a question I obviously can't answer. But I think it made me fairly fearless towards life in general after that. I mean, you had that fearlessness to even step on the boat, I think, compared to the way some of us uh, make decisions. You just jumped in. I was, I was writing notes as you were talking, and one of the notes was that there's just this lust for life. There was the opportunity. I'm going to go after that. I'm going to experience it. And for many people, I mean, as you were describing it, you're still encouraging us all to get on a boat. Now, I'm sure like... Plenty of people listening to this right now will never go in a swimming pool again, let alone in a boat. 
But you went through this and you still get on the water. You know, this thing happened. And, and I think this is the some perhaps the recurring thing that comes out of there. There's this acceptance in you. And maybe that's just come over time. And please push back. If this is just, I'm making this more poetic than it seems, but there's this acceptance of nature. I don't know if there's that, an affinity is the right word, but you've accepted what happened. It's not shrunk you, it's enlarged you in a way. Yeah, and I very much love to go sailing in the Southern Ocean still. So the strange thing about it is that, you know, my life then took me into farming. And in many ways, I felt that farming was very much like doing an ocean, ocean cruise. Mm-hmm. You are working with nature constantly. Nature is far more powerful. You can try and fight it, but you're not going to win. So you just got to work with it and deal with it. And there were many times when we had serious challenges on the farm that were weather-induced. And I think, oh, well, this is just like sailing. You know, we've got to make the most of it. We've got to get through it. And we probably will get through it. So I think that that is probably another big thing I took from it. Dr. Fabian Rivers is well known on this side of the Atlantic. Voted Young Vet of the Year, building a successful media career, and growing his skills in exotic medicine. Life looks good. But the backstory is of a career that could so easily never have happened. Why not, you ask? Well, the answer lies in the institutionalized racism found at the heart of our society and our profession. Fabian had to work a lot harder than others, and indeed find a back door into the profession when the front door was seemingly closed. Now he's used his experience of overcoming adversity in order to accomplish his goals to create a solid sense of self. An individual who views life not so much as a glass half full, but one overflowing regardless of experience. Let's hear from Fabian. So I feel I have, let's find the right words for this. What makes me positive and what makes me motivated is the fact that I have done enough to be content with where I'm at. And so I always like to read lots of different books and have lots of different actual insights into who we are as individuals. What is the the state of the reality of the world around us? And read lots of different thoughts about how we best approach that. But the one thing that I always try to do is not to be too objective about how that worldview is is applied. And I think a lot of people will read a, I don't know, your typical self-care book or a philosophy book and say, right, this is how I'm seeing the world. Whether it's politics or not, this is what I'm applying to the world and this is how it always has to be. And I'm only going to read literature or invest in the idea from this idea henceforth. Whereas I feel like on aggregate, on average, there are lots of different things you can pick up from a lot of different spaces, whether they align to you or not, and kind of put that into a box where you get an essence of what works for you. And so when coming back to the idea of how I stay positive, the one thing that has made me understand the world better than anything is that first and foremost, that my place in the world is... Probably, not definitely, but probably when regards to everything that's happened, largely insignificant. I don't mean it's in the sense that you do not have value. What I'm saying is that my value is very much attached to myself as an individual and that I have an opportunity to do things that make me feel connected to the world around me. Whatever that is, I have an opportunity. But in the grand scheme of things, there is so much about the world and the universe around us that I have an opportunity to pay attention to nature and people and everything is an opportunity. And so my position in that is one very small piece of a huge bigger picture. So I can't take myself too seriously because who am I to be that important person? And I don't believe that at its root. But my relative significance is another idea that I have value and inherent worthiness, or which is the kind of the, the word that we're always talking about, a worthiness. Am I worthy? I've already done it. All I have to do is look at my past. I have overcome this. I have done that. I have done this. Whether or not I've got awards or not, whether or not I even remember it, it's happened. And so who I am as a person is in the past. And that is enough. 
So every day is a bonus for me. I, like if I, I and I, I say this with the lightest intention, so I hope no one gets upset with me. If I was to fall down and die tomorrow, I would be content. I've reached this point in my life where I, the only thing I ever wanted to be was a vet. And the only thing I ever wanted to do was have an opportunity to be around animals. And the only thing I ever wanted to do was try and be as kind to as many people as possible. And I've done all of those. They're all done. You know, I, I don't need any more from life. And so everything is a bonus. And when you approach everything as a bonus, whether the opportunity comes, whether it doesn't, you do not feel hurt by that. Because it's not about, and people always say to me, you know, I can't tell you, honestly, the amount of time people say to me, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I go, I don't know. And like, why is that such a big part of how we value ourselves in society? Because I may not, I could genuinely, it sounds morbid again, I could walk in front of a bus tomorrow by accident. But does that mean I'm, the things I've overcome and the, the situations that I've faced and the experiences I've had are any less important? Well, no, because they've happened and they are important by design. So that is how I stay positive because there's, the positivity has already happened. The beauty of my journey has already happened. So I don't need to be you know, too het up about anything that happens in the future because I have that reference point. And my value is inherent because of the past. The who I am is my past. And every time you interpret something, this whole conversation, as soon as we go back and review it, it is in the past. It is something that we can share. It is there. It is salient. And if, if in 60 years time I get, you know, Alzheimer's, it still happened. You know, that for me is, is kind of my, my daily worldview. It reminds me not to take myself too seriously. It reminds me to give as many opportunities to be connected with people like yourself or you know, the student who doesn't know how to get into veterinary medicine or the student who left university. Because I say to yourself, well, you didn't finish veterinary medicine, but you bloody got there. Like, that's OK. Like, you're OK. That's OK. And so with regards to how race and things happen, I see it as like I have an opportunity. And this is where another side comes in. It's very much like a stoic we are part of a bigger picture, very Buddhist and whatever you want to call it. I have an opportunity to help give people the opportunities that I thought I might never have had. And so even if people do not get there, at least they have a helping hand. And I would rather the world be, no one has to think about whether the opportunity is possible but that they have the choice to decide what opportunities they take up. That would be the perfect world for me because I know that being here now is just great. Like I'm just so blessed to be able to, to have this opportunity. And again, the opportunity is important. It's not actually the, the physical being there. So all those things keep me really, really positive and centered. Back in May, I spoke to double winner of the coveted VMX Speaker of the Year Award and born educator, Megan Brashear. Self-claimed introvert, Megan surprised me with her ability to talk so openly about her rebounds from her fair share of knockdown blows. In this clip, we explore the time she spontaneously accepted a job offer in Indiana whilst living in Portland and how this helped her overcome a real low point in her life when she broke down on a voicemail to close friend Eric Garcia. The take home? If you're not happy, do something to change things up. I was sitting at the bar, <laughs> just like, I don't, what am I going to do? And I get a phone call from a technician who I had met before, but was not really friends with. I honestly don't know how she had my phone number, but she called me and said, do you want to come to Purdue because my boss is leaving? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And it was this, like, this is my out and this will be a massive change. And yeah, I think I want to do this. How did you feel in that moment? Like there was just an out of the blue call. Did you give an out, out of the blue answer right there at the bar? Yeah, I did. Because she said, do you want to come to Purdue? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And she was completely like, what? <laughs> and this was kind of a joke phone call. Like there were a couple of the Purdue supervisors that got together and they're like, well, well maybe Megan Brashear wants this job. And so... She said, well, I have her phone number. I'll call her. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I want to do this. And then they just went, where do we go from here? I didn't know she was going to say yes. 
But I had been to Purdue before. I had never worked in academia, but obviously like love teaching and it would be a huge challenge personally and professionally and all of those things. And I knew that I needed to do something dramatic and this is pretty dramatic. (laughs) So let's try it. And I did. And I waited, you know, I wrote a job description and sent it to them and they had theirs. And we kind of put this job together because it was going to be different than what the previous person had been doing. And the job was posted and I applied for it and I flew out here and interviewed. I don't remember much of it at all because it still seemed like just this crazy idea. Like, why would I move to Indiana? I live in Portland, Oregon. It's so wonderful out here. I was miserable. So why not? Why not move to Indiana? So I did. (laughs) I just packed up what I wanted. I gave away a ton of things. And who got the coaches? Uh, <laughs> I gave them to a coworker, and I see that she'll Both post of on them? Instagram. No, the first one I did get rid of is I donated it before I moved. <laughs> I was going to say that needed to be a flaming bonfire at the front of your. I really, yes, looking back, should have just set it all on fire. I called up some dude on the internet, and I sold my house. Like I never put it on the market. I sold it to a flipper. Eric Garcia was so concerned. He's like, Megan, what are you doing? You just like, what if you get scammed out of your entire house? And I was like, I don't care. I honestly and truly, I need out. I don't care what happens. There is nothing of just do whatever you want to it. And that's it. Packed up my car, took my animals and drove out here. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Eric Garcia there and I assume this is after the phone call. Yes. <laughs> now, this is. So, <laughs> so, going back to understanding when I need to take a break is <laughs> this just pure, unadulterated anger at stupid things. I believe at the time that that phone call was made, I was in the process of like, interviewing out here. I don't think I had been out here yet, but I think I knew that I was going to be done. But I had a day off from work and I had taken Elliot to this river bottoms, like swimming, throwing the ball. Like I'd been outside doing one of my favorite things for a couple hours. And I was driving back home and the traffic in Portland is just the worst. And they were doing some construction and they had closed the freeway exit that I take to get to my house. And I was going to have to go one more exit, another mile, double back. It was probably going to add 10 minutes to my trip. And I lost my mind, just literally (laughs) yelling in my car, crying. I had a complete breakdown over construction. And so I called Eric because I I really was a little bit scared of what is happening here? Why? Why? So of course, he didn't answer. And I make fun of him for being a grandpa because he goes to bed. <laughs> this was probably 830 my time. So it would have been 1130 uh, his time because he lives in Florida. But I just yelled at his voicemail for a couple minutes. And I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm yelling, I'm talking quietly, like it was just a complete break with reality. And then I ended it just laughing and like, okay, bye. (laughs) And to his credit, he saved that voicemail. I think he listened to endless rants on my end until I could understand that I was so miserable, I needed to leave. And that thankfully he saved that. It's hard for me to go back and listen to it because I still remember how that felt. But I'm glad that I can look back at that and laugh and say that was my low point, but I had recognized it and I was looking for and working on a way out. But I've played that voicemail in a couple different lectures to help people see that it happens and it's okay But when you get to that point, you can't just say, well, whatever, I'm just going to go back to work and keep doing the same things because that does not lead anywhere good. 
In June, my guest gave me the chance to step outside of the profession with psychologist, life coach and speaker, Dr. Sharon Grossman. Let's hear from her. She gives her professional advice on overcoming tough times. She's a psychologist who's worked with lawyers, doctors and other high achieving professionals. So she's no stranger to individuals who are prone to sacrificing their self-care as a result of work demands. Although this episode was perhaps not your standard blunt dissection episode, it did allow me to explore some of the tools available to take control and manage our own experience. So we all have the chance to thrive in our careers. One that if more of us were willing to take, and skills if more of us were willing to learn, might reduce burnout, resurrect careers and literally save lives. FitMed is, after all, for many of us, not just a job, it's a vocation. So this stuff matters. Let's hear from Sharon. And for every event that happens in our life, we have lots and lots of thoughts. It's not one, right? So if you just describe feeling like gutted and guilty and ashamed and afraid, like all these different emotions, it's because this one event then led you down all these different paths of thinking. You're looking at the situation from from different angles. So one angle is I should have done this differently. And then you might feel guilty. And the other is, I am a bad physician, or, you know, I'm a bad doctor, and then you feel ashamed. And then you tell yourself, they are going to fire me. And then you feel afraid. So you're looking at this one thing happened. And now you're going in all directions thinking about all the things that are associated with triggering the emotion. Yeah, so all the different thoughts are leading to all the different emotions. And so we have to slow down first and foremost, right? Like it's overwhelming to take all of that in at once. And so what I would have you do is do a thought download, write all the thoughts that you have about it. And then ask yourself, when you think this one thought, how do you feel? And you're able to kind of make that arrow from the thought to this specific feeling. And then you might have like three different thoughts that lead you to feeling guilty or you know, you might have one thought that leads you to feeling two different emotions. But ultimately, I want you to see the connection between your thoughts and your feelings. And once you have all that on paper, then you can say, okay, like this is like, let's say I just want to work first and foremost on feeling guilty, right? And the the reason I feel guilty is because the thought that goes through my mind is I should have done it differently. Okay. And so I would say to you, okay, well, that is a thought that's creating guilt, but you didn't do it differently. You did it the way you did it. And there's nothing you can do about it now, right? What do you want to feel about the fact that you did it the way that you did, right? You're not going to change it. And thinking about what you could have, should have, whatever, doesn't change what is, right? So some of it is also thinking about what are the things that you can control and what are the things that you can't. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, and that is that the only thing that you can control is what has to do with you right now and in the future, but you can't change the past. So if it's something that either has nothing to do with you or something that in some way, shape or form is out of your control, because you know it could be you, but it was in the past, then the only thing you can do is just focus in on how am I thinking and feeling about it now? What am I doing about it now? Or what am I going to do moving forward? Which is kind of like what you were saying, what is the lesson that I can learn? It's a painful mm-hmm. lesson, but I've learned a lesson nonetheless. And that is serving for me to be a better doctor moving forward. And when you think about that, yes, this animal died And yes, you have all kinds of thoughts and feelings about that. But if you said to yourself, you know, as painful as this is, this is part of my training to be a much better doctor moving forward, how would you feel? There would be an element of relief. An element of relief. Now, the situation hasn't changed. But notice it's what you feed your brain that is going to align with how you feel. And notice that when you feel guilty, what kind of behaviors you engage in are going to be very different from the kind of behaviors you engage in when you feel relieved. Being able to adapt and overcome is something my guest, Dr. Marty Becker, really has in abundance. This episode with America's veterinarian blew my mind. Marty's been a friend for a number of years, and this episode was long overdue. In case you've been living under a rock, Marty is one of the best known veterinarians on the planet. He is most recently and probably best known at the moment for being the founder of the Fear Free Practice Movement. 
But he's written 23 books, and I think it's safe to say he's one of the biggest cheerleaders our profession has ever had. Now, there was a lot of clips I could have chosen here. I chose this one because it's an example of how giddy he gets when he's thinking and talking about things he's passionate about. And in this case, we talk about pets and their incredible bond with humans and how during a really tough year, pets have actually shown up to be one of the things that have offered us a rock. A rock when perhaps mentally we were in danger of being swept away. And when I say we, I don't mean vets, I mean people. To such an extent, this relationship has become important that senior doctors in the US are seriously recommending pet ownership as a way of tackling stress. Why? Well, I'm going to let Marty explain that. Let's just say it's pretty remarkable. Over to you, Marty. One of the books I wrote is The Healing Power of Pets. That's the key to the healing power of pets or the human-animal health connection is intimacy, close physical contact. That, that's when the magic came. All right, so here it is, Dave. I am in COVID, and I happen to know the past president of the Mayo Clinic. He's the most prodigious fundraiser in Mayo history. Why would he be that? Because he headed oncology. So just think of the people that go to the Mayo Clinic with cancer, right? And, oh, they passed on, and then they're going to do stuff. He's also boarded in internal medicine, hospice, and palliative care, quadruple boarded at the mothership of Mayo. So (laughs) I call him up, and I said, hey, Ed. His name is Ed Cregan, and he's, he wrote a number one New York Times bestseller called How Not to Become My Patient, by the way. Hey, I want the inside scoop on how to protect my family from COVID. And I thought he'd say, forget hydroxyquinolone, you know, but mega doses of vitamin D or do, you know, something, you know. And he goes, Marty, I was just on the phone, a collective call today with some of the top medical centers And we were trying to get the administration to deploy pets to fight COVID. No way. Uh, I said, what? Say that again. You know know how you you, you and I are both like, what did you just say? Tell me more. And he said, Marty, do you remember when you interviewed me for the Healing Power Pets? Because Ed had written over 500 prescriptions for a pet on a prescription pad at the Mayo Clinic. So it was like at the time, uh, Lipitor was the number one drug for cholesterol. So it was like lab instead of Lipitor, poodle instead of Prozac, you know. (laughs) And he goes, you're going to get COVID and you're going to survive because of your immune system. Or you're going to get vaccinated and build immunity and survive because of your immune system. What is the enemy of the immune system is cortisol. Right. Fear, anxiety, and stress cause cortisol release. Cortisol weakens the immune response. So how are we going to reduce fear, anxiety, and stress? And he actually went, duh, because (laughs) 75% of Americans have pets. It's a medicine that tastes good. It's a medicine that goes down easy. It's a medicine that doesn't have any side effects. And he said you can deploy it for the cost of one bacon strip. (laughs) And I thought, hell, you're right. Uh, But see, that never, that should have gone out. And, but you know what? It really didn't need to go out because what we did once we were home, we activated that darn thing ourselves. And the people that had always wonder, how can, I, I remember a guy coming over one time to my house and he goes, that dog just used his tongue as toilet paper and you let it kiss you on the mouth. <laughs> and I said, hell yeah. I, and I'm not going to, would not you, you kiss me on the mouth or licking me would creep me out. But they finally saw what all this shit was about. Why would we let a pet kiss us on the mouth? Why would we sit in a semi-paralytic state on the edge of the bed so that the, we didn't wake the dog up who's only slept 18 of the last 24 <laughs> hours, right? So I think we found it ourselves that we somehow it came into that that closeness, that intimacy that we needed at the right time when we didn't have intimacy and closeness with other family members and friends. My next guest has to rank up there as one of my all-time favorite guests and was the wonderful Dr. Robin Downing. My interview with Robin broke the record for the first and possibly only guest to make me cry. Not just once, but three times over. Thanks for that, Robin. Actually, no, genuinely thanks for that because they were beautiful stories you told and really touching. Robin's pathway in veterinary medicine really has at times been quite hair-raising. 
uh, being a gay woman in the 80s wasn't easy, came with discrimination inside of vet, vet medicine and, and beyond. But Robin fought to overcome this. This clip's both heartwarming and heartbreaking as she recalls one of the lowest points in her life, a time where she considered suicide and was saved by thought and a pair of brown eyes. I'll leave it there because Robin explains this so much better than I ever could, but just be aware that this clip comes with a trigger warning because we do touch on suicidal ideation. It's upbeat, but if that's confronting to you, then you can skip right past it. Fast forward to the next clip. But if you dare to listen, then I hope you find something affirming, helpful, and heartwarming. Over to you, Robin. In that era, ours was a very homophobic profession. And so it was a very interesting experience for me who had been an out lesbian since 1978 to in 1982, four years later, you know, I spent four years getting my consciousness raised and figuring out how to navigate a world that was pretty hostile to Mm. the LGBTQ community to then get to veterinary school and go straight back in the closet. And that was a very, very disconcerting experience. I was already partnered with the person who ultimately, I can say, became my wife when our SCOTUS wrote the opinion that provided marriage equality here in the U.S. But We had been together for four years at that point, and we were living apart because she basically told me that if I didn't go to veterinary school and I didn't fulfill what she saw in me that I was still discovering, that she would leave me. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. My condition for us to remain partners is for you to complete your professional education So back in the closet, I went, and that was the part of being at school. So beyond just being female, for me, it was not so much about being female. It was about being a closeted gay woman. And it was in my sophomore year, so between first and second semesters, that I reached my very lowest point. And this is a story that I have related to a few folk, particularly people who've come to me over the years to express their concern about coming out in the veterinary workplace, either in industry or in practice. And I I think it illustrates why it's so toxic for us not to be able to acknowledge who we are. So there I am in my apartment all by myself between semesters. And at that time, at least, second year, first semester was really acknowledged to be the worst semester of veterinary school, the hardest academically, the most demanding. And I certainly found it to be the case. And there I was at my very lowest point, literally in my lifetime. And I just said, I think I can't be here anymore. And I had in my possession enough diazepam and a bottle of wine, plenty, to exit. And we talked about the importance of our relationships with animals. And this is the part that's hard for me to relate. But there I was ready to just say, fuck it and leave. And I'll be Damned if my dog, Micah, the half border collie, half lab, hybrid vigor, I didn't get the best of both breeds. I got the worst of both breeds. So I had limitless energy and no focus in this dog. And here comes Micah, lays in my lap, licks my face. And all I can think was who in the hell would be willing to take care of this dog. I certainly can't kill myself now. 
So I flushed the Valium and I drank the wine and I had a hell of a hangover the next day. And the first day of school in the second semester, my attitude became, I am here, I am queer, and you can just fucking deal with it. In September, it was a real honor to speak to Dr. Mandisa Green. Mandisa is the first black president of that ancient of ancient veterinary institutions, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons here in the United Kingdom. Mandisa is one determined cookie. And in this clip, she shares how her family mantra of what's the problem and what's the solution has served her well through her life, through her career, as she's battled through her struggles to reach the pinnacle that she's reached today. Let's hear more. So me in my in my mind at the time my application was not strong enough right i remember so i remember putting in my application um with the support of i had had some um careers guidance people giving me some support and, and letting me know how to fill in this ucas form which i'd never done before and were they supportive of your application the original careers the original careers support person said that I shouldn't bother, that it was not going to be a good idea. I wouldn't get in. I, I probably didn't meet the standard and all of that stuff. But again, I, I always knew that I needed to find people who would align with my vision for myself. Mm. And so if that person didn't align, it didn't mean that, that their opinion wasn't valid. It's valid to them, but I need to find somebody who, who aligns with my vision and who can help me move forward in the direction that I want to move in. So for that, it was kind of, well, I'm not going to use this individual, but I'm going to find somebody else who can who can jump on board with this vision and get us going forward. So I had some support. And I think they hadn't had the information. I did not know the idea. Well, in my opinion, I didn't know that I needed to have lots of work experience. I'd done some work experience, and I think I kind of put in my application originally that I really wanted to be a vet. I always wanted to be one and that stuff. And I, I think I kind of did not... I went through a different way of communicating, expressing my uh, desire and uh, ambition. Uh, the second time around, again, I had spoken to so many more people. I'd, I'd been going to vets and doing lots of work experience and done kind of horse and farm and the, the variety and just really felt much more confident in my ability to present an application and had been doing a science-based degree. So understood that I had had a really solid foundation. So I think my application the second time around was just much stronger as an individual who, if in the mind of the person reading my application is, can she do this degree? Well, the answer is going to be yes, because she is determined. You can see how much work experience she's done. She's able because she successfully completed a science-based degree and she's motivated. So, you know, I, I feel that my application the second time around was just a lot more, it was a lot more solid, it was stronger the second time around. Yeah. Um, when it comes to race, I'll, I'll, I'll to race. When it comes to race, I remember in the first application, because of course in, in Trinidad, we don't have to tick a box at all. So in terms of identifying where you feel you fall, in where you identify as, as an ethnicity, and that's not something I had ever faced before. And I remember picking in the first one, I didn't know what to pick, and I said to my sister, she said, well, you're Black Caribbean, that's what it's, or Afri African Caribbean, or whatever it was labeled at the time, 100 years ago. And then the second time round, I remember picking a Black other, because I thought, well, I don't know I don't want to anyone to look at this application and bias me uh, based on what they think I am. So I'm definitely black, but I'm just going to take other so that you'll have to have a mystery in your head. And if you want to find out, then you'll have to ask me to, to uh, an interview. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. And I just think it's fascinating the way that you've gone about and, and been very, not single-minded, very open-minded, but very focused. Yeah. And, on your objective. Is that kind of typical of Mandisa Green? Is that is that a trait that you've retained through the years? Yes, I think so. I think so. I think I am, if I have a goal or um, an ambition in mind, I can be very single-minded. I think becoming a vet was really different though, because that was something that I had kind of embraced from a very early age. And it was an identity that I took on in my, it's a role and identity I took on in my family and in my community and my 
it was kind of that's what my parents said I was going to do. So everybody around me expected me to be a vet. So no one was surprised when I became one because it was what I said I was going to do. And it's this idea of if you speak it from a very early age, if you communicate it, then you have to then do it. You can't then decide you're going to change your mind. And I was not one of those people who was uh, was fortunate enough to be very intelligent and not know what I wanted to do. I wanted, I knew what I wanted to do and I had to work really, really hard. So I had to then kind of be very single-minded and focused. And I often think it's blinkered because I didn't, I didn't even explore the idea of doing anything else. I didn't, at right. no stage did I say, huh, maybe I'll become a marine biologist or maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll become an artist. So I, I didn't explore anything else. I was, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to get it done. And so, yeah, I think for me that was for me and for my personality, that was very good, that I was able to fulfill a dream from childhood. And so the question that jumped straight into my head here is, so was it the right decision? How, oh, you know, has this been a career that, do you, is there, are there any regrets? Not at all. Not at all. For me, I think becoming a vet was more than I had imagined, because I had imagined it from a very single focus of my family vet, a small animal vet, kind of seeing people Monday to Friday or on weekends for small, you know, for, for limited hours. And I think I thought that that was what I was going to be. And I didn't really understand what it would feel like. I didn't understand how I would feel kind of communicating with people and looking after their animals. And it just felt so much better than I thought it would. Overcoming adversity in ourselves as vets is one thing, but how can we support the students, the next generation? Those guys who've missed out on really critical schooling as a result of the pandemic. I was really excited to have this conversation with Professor Liz Mossop. It was my second attempt at it, the first time my car broke down en route. Uh, so a lot happened in the, the two years between the first attempt and the actual interview. And that way it really kind of worked out kind of well because there was a lot of new stuff Liz had been working on. Liz is one of the most influential and innovative people and in this clip we hear about her ideas on steering veterinary education and how she thinks we can best support veterinary students through these really difficult times. To me the first thing is recognition. It's been an awful year and of course their experiences of you know the most recent cohort that have graduated you know I've, I've not been involved because I don't work at a vet school anymore but I know from talking to my colleagues that you know it's been incredibly difficult and of course the schools have done as much as possible to try and ensure that you know and of course they still met the day one competences and graduated and you know they can't graduate without that so they have met the competences and they've still been taught all, all the learning objectives they should have been taught but you know of course the, the exposure to the clinical environment has not been you know what it was in the past and and that yeah you, I mean you're right it, it will mean they're on the back foot to some extent I mean I guess you know we do have to remember also that the amount of exposure our students get at the moment under the RCVS's requirements is absolutely gold standard compared to you know the rest of the world so you know we are already doing it quite well the amount they they do a vms and of course you know intramural rotations as well but yes i mean this will certainly you know it's certainly going to have impacted students i suppose the first thing is no graduate is the same so you know if you're somebody now with one of those graduates in your practice and you know i'm sure most people would have done this already sit down with them talk to them about where they are underconfident where they didn't perhaps get as much exposure as they would like just like you would with any new graduate really i would hope and of course you know we have got the new the new rcvs professional development phase uh vet gdp it's called now um which i've been involved in a little bit on the sides which is you know hopefully trying to structure that a little bit more which is you know something the profession definitely needed and you know i mean essentially what i'm talking about is a sort of ongoing reflective process it's something you would do as a mentor or as a as a manager you know it's got to be something that has got some structure around it it can't just be random and whenever we get five minutes we'll do it and i think by being a a genuine person you can go a long way with that underconfident you know perhaps slightly terrified new graduate who actually you know has probably got some amazing skills but doesn't realize it yet and just with that yeah. bit of an opportunity 
of support and encouragement and you know giving them a, a near peer mentor as well as a, a you know a more senior mentor can be you know really incredibly helpful um, again it's all very well us sitting here talking about it and I know there are plenty of people who do this brilliantly already but I suppose it comes back to that point that I would make which is that you know education is not it does not stop after five years when the vet school doors chain, close you know we have to think about it as a continuum and so if you're out in the profession, then I don't know, I think you have a sort of moral obligation to support new graduates, just like you were hopefully supported. And maybe you weren't supported when you came out. You know, that's the issue. But, you know, let's make a change and make it different. And, you know, I know full well that many people do it absolutely brilliantly. And of course, we're seeing more and more, you know, new graduate programmes from from the corporates. And, and, you know, that's not surprising because they recognise the need to ensure that graduates are supported properly and not just thrown into the lion's den like perhaps we were to some extent, which I'm not sure. I'm not sure how appropriate, you know, if you take what happened 20 years ago as a new graduate and did that now, that just would not work, would it? Bearing in mind the changes to society and social media and legislation, all these things just wouldn't happen. While many of my guests have shown courage in the face of adversity, it would be incomplete to wind up the episode without a nod to two really important other tools which, particularly when combined, can work miracles to both our mental health and our forward progress. Being vulnerable and having a trusted mentor are two things that cannot be underestimated. So in November, I spoke to Jade Stat. Jade's the co-founder of StreetVet and... We spoke about how a cherished mentor helped her to overcome many of her fears and anxieties about starting up what is now one of the largest veterinary charities helping the homeless and their pets across the UK. It's a really amazing journey and and of all the episodes this year, this is one of my favourites. So listen in as Jade speaks candidly about how she wouldn't be doing what she is today without this person, but these titans in our lives generally. Just spoke very warmly about Nick Short. I call people my veterinary heroes. It sounds like perhaps Nick was a veterinary hero to you. Could you tell me a bit more about you know that relationship and you know the best human being that you've sort of encountered? That's some pretty big praise. Yeah. So no, I met Nick. So I mean, I was pretty. Yeah, I'd never spoken to anyone about my mental health before, and then I just phoned this man who I found through connecting when I was looking up vet life and he just like took about I don't know I must have been on the phone to him for like an hour and a half just never met me didn't know who the heck I was and I he was just so patient and so like sort of listening to everything I was saying and then from there yeah it just sort of snowballed into us working together we worked together on the play we worked together on the book and then you know he put me forward to being on vet life board and then, yeah, like when I first plucked Street Bit out of thin air, as it were, you know, he was the guy like that I contacted and was like, this sounds a bit mental, <laughs> but I'd quite like to do this. And again, he was just one of those people that, yeah, just had just this amazingly wise words for you always. And yeah, I just absolutely, yeah, I really adored him. And he just had a really wonderful sort of energy really I guess is the best way to describe him and yeah so he helped me with street vet he was always around for me to be like okay what am I doing I'm in this like world I don't know what I'm doing I think I've bitten off too much you know help me and you know equally you know we both had issues with our mental health and so if he was having a moment then he would call me and vice versa so yeah he's someone that did so much for the profession not just like from a, a vet life point of view, but, you know, he was such an amazing mentor for so many students um, that used to come to him and he helped them. He was working at the Royal Vet College. So, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, Nick was definitely a real sort of guiding person in my journey to street vet, definitely. We see further and feel so much bigger when we stand on the shoulders of giants. And that, my friends, that's really as positive a message as I can leave you with today. So all that remains is to thank all of my guests this year for giving up their precious time to have conversations that maybe seem silly at the time, but affect so many of you all over the world. I made some really great new friends, deepened some relationships with people I knew a little, 
and I hope I've helped you work through another year in this special place we inhabit this world of veterinary medicine. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. I really hope you get some downtime with your friends and family over the festive season. I hope also that if this is your first time listening to the show that you enjoyed it and the point of this show is to give you a little bit of a taster of some of the the episodes that you can go back and listen to. There's a lot of them now. So please uh, do dip in where where you feel it's appropriate for you. And if you have enjoyed the season this year, one last request from me is to please share the show with somebody you think would benefit from it. Or I'd also be really grateful if you'd leave a review on iTunes. So for the last time this year, from all of us here at VEDEX International, be safe, be well, and be happy. <laughs>